Well, there are some things in life that you know are good for you, but you don't really know how good until someone shows you just how good it is. I got firsthand experience with this a few years back when uh, I went to go see a new dentist. And when I made that first appointment and, and walked into the office, I expected them to, you know, take a few x-rays and, and then maybe the, the dentist to look over my teeth a little bit and then maybe to, you know, do a cleaning or something along those lines. But, but to my surprise, he actually didn't do any of that. Instead, he spent about an hour just talking to me about the anatomy of teeth. And I was like, dude, I, I didn't come here to, to hear a lecture about, you know, for about teeth, you know, that, that's not why I'm here. But he told me a lot of interesting things I didn't know. First of all, I mean, for starters, uh, he told me that, you know, when you zoom in on a tooth, like with a microscope, you don't see just a flat ivory, wall of ivory on your tooth, which is what we normally would look at and see, but rather you see these, these microscopic holes on the tooth. And there are blood vessels deep inside the tooth where the roots are that kind of come up through the tooth and they secrete a special liquid through those holes to the surface of your teeth to protect it from plaque and other things of that nature. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I never realized that my teeth had a built-in mechanism to protect itself against tooth decay or something like that. You know, I always was taught and thought that just brushing and flossing would do the trick, and that's all that was there for, the, for a defense for my teeth. But then the dentist told me something else. He told me about the importance of the mineral magnesium. Magnesium, you're probably all familiar with magnesium to one degree or another, even if you don't know exactly what it is. And I, I was aware of magnesium. Um, I knew that it was an important mineral, an essential mineral for the body to survive. But I was about to learn just how essential magnesium was for the body. The dentist told me that magnesium, and I quote, is probably the most important mineral of all. It is critical to allowing all the other minerals to work and all the internal processes in your cells to function properly. And it's what enables other vitamins and minerals, such as vitamin D, for example, to form that special fluid that, uh, built, that, that, that comes outside of the, uh, from inside the teeth, outside of the teeth, uh, to, be able, to be able to protect it from that plaque buildup. And without the proper amount of magnesium in my diet, or even maybe even the right kinds of magnesium, the teeth just cannot protect themselves and the body is not going to function very well at all either. And wouldn't you know it, when I started changing my magnesium intake and the kind of magnesium that I needed to take, my teeth got a lot better and my body started feeling more healthier overall with a lot more energy. Magnesium was something that I knew was good for me, but I didn't know just how good. There's a doctrine in your Bible that is actually like this. There's a truth that we know about and we talk about a lot in Christianity, but I'm concerned we actually don't know, really, we don't really know it as well as we think we might know it. We don't understand why it matters all too much or how it's really supposed to change our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. What doctrine am I talking about? I think it might surprise you, but... I'm talking about the resurrection, the resurrection. Sure, you can find the resurrection all over the place. It's in our music. It's plastered on greeting cards. 
It's woven on throw pillows. It's even celebrated as a national holiday coming up in just a few weeks. But while the resurrection is a doctrine we wholeheartedly confess and champion, it is also a doctrine we struggle to see where it's relevant, I think. Why does the resurrection matter? How does it change your life day to day? If I were to ask you that question, could you tell me? And not just tell me that it does, but specifically tell me how it does. And not just tell me specifically how it does, but tell me how the Bible itself says it does. Not just your own logic. You see, the resurrection does matter. It matters so much. The Apostle Paul actually labels the resurrection as power in Philippians chapter 3, the power of the resurrection. In other words, the resurrection does something. It changes you. It changes this world. But how? How does it do that? That's the question, isn't it? If the Bible is so big on the doctrine of the resurrection and its scope of impact in our lives, and we know this, we have the responsibility to understand exactly how, don't we? And that's what I want to help us to do today. I want to be like my dentist, and I want to open our eyes to see just how relevant the resurrection is for you and for me. As the burdens that we bring to church continue to get heavier and heavier week by week. The difficulties that you face are mounting more and more. We need something that is going to be able to, to bear these loads because things are not getting easier. They're getting harder. We have so many burdens that we carry with us. You have a burden that you brought with you to church this morning. I know you do. I know you do. And I guarantee you, the vast majority of those burdens are not small. But I want you to know, whatever burden you brought with you today, the resurrection is built to carry it all. It is built to carry it all. The resurrection has the power to address all of these issues that you may have. And so to see just how dense and meaningful the, the doctrine of the resurrection is, I want us to turn in our Bibles not to the New Testament. I want us to turn to the Old Testament this morning. The Old Testament, because it's actually in the Old Testament of all places where we catch a glimpse of the resurrection and all of its significance. And we won't be able to cover everything the Old Testament says about the resurrection, but my goal is that we would get a firm grasp of it this morning by surveying all the key passages that bring to light its profound theology. And if you're like, is the resurrection even in the Old Testament? Yeah, actually it is. It's all over the place. Uh, we're going to visit 14 passages in the Old Testament this morning. 14. You're like, that's nuts, I know. But that's what we're going to do. Because there's just, there's just so much that we have to look at this morning. So buckle up, PBC. We're going to take a bit of a road trip this morning through your Old Testament, okay? And we'll make six stops along the way, all right? Six stops. Six books in your Old Testament that feature the resurrection. And from each book, we will learn one unique lesson about resurrection theology, 
okay? One unique uh, lesson about resurrection theology. So without further ado, let's get started, shall we? Our first stop on our road trip is the book of Job. The book of Job. Open your Bibles to Job chapter 14. Job 14. Uh, Job is no doubt a familiar story to all of us. In fact, we were just discussing the opening chapters of Job this morning in the equipping hour. Uh, And those opening chapters really tell the story of how a godly man named Job lost everything all in just one moment. Literally, servant after servant was coming up to Job, giving him bad news after bad news. And before that servant can finish, there was another one that came up. Can you imagine that? And the, the things he was telling them were not like, oh, you know, you know, you lost, you know, someone, you know, stole, you know, your couch or something like that. No, it was like all of your cattle are gone. All of your servants are gone. All of your kids are dead. Wow, in one moment. But instead of cursing God like we all would be tempted to do in that moment, Job actually worships God and he concludes that God is still right even in a world gone wrong. Yet even so, you can imagine such an incredibly hard experience would prompt Job to get in a very deep philosophical conversation uh, and that's exactly what happens He does that with some of his brightest friends about why bad things happen to good people. Job wasn't necessarily a bad person. He was the most righteous man on the face of the planet at that time. His buddies started to claim, well, God must always be right, but Job is suffering, and God rewards good and punishes evil. Therefore, Job must have done something wrong. That was the the rationale. And Job claimed, well, yes, God is right, I believe that, but I didn't do anything wrong to warrant so much affliction, I don't think. Therefore, I have no idea why I'm suffering. It doesn't make any sense. And so Job wrestles with the goodness of God in the face of what appears to be unjustifiable evil. He believes God is good, that he's not sadistic in any way, but he wants God, here's the thing, he wants God to prove it. Prove it, God. Please, show me that you're good. Do something that is so earth-shattering, so revolutionary, that would be undeniably clear that you are good. And so Job, Job tries to think up of the biggest solution uh, that, that he can think of that, that would prove God's goodness. And what does he come up with? He comes up with a resurrection. I don't know if that's what we'd, we would come up with, but that's what he comes up with, a resurrection. Because a resurrection in Job's mind would justify the hard fact that God would allow evil in this world. A resurrection, you could put it this way, in his mind, would solve the problem of evil. It would solve the problem of evil. Look at verse 13 in your text here. It says, oh, that you would conceal me in Sheol that you would hide me until your anger returns to you, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my labor, I will wait until my change comes. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. Now, in these three verses, Job voices a deep wish for a resurrection. 
But notice, he's not really entirely sure if it's possible just yet. He says, if a man dies, will he live again? I don't know. I'm not sure. But he's hoping against hope it's true. Because if it is, then God is good even to allow evil to exist because that evil will be resolved by that resurrection. That's the logic. But, but maybe we're struggling here. How, how, does, how does a resurrection solve evil? I don't get that. What is it about a resurrection that resolves evil this thoroughly? Why is that the solution Job comes up with? Well, resurrection does several things, at least in Job's mind, First, resurrection would bring about a spiritual transformation. It'd bring about a spiritual transformation. Look at verse four. Verse four. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. No one. Job correctly admits that there is no one he knows of who can absolve sin, his own sins, or even the sins of others. Because everyone is sinful. However, as the passage goes on, Job seems to apply that if a resurrection exists, it would indicate that God found a way to resolve this problem and make him clean somehow. You're like, help me understand this. Well, the logic essentially goes like this. Since death is the necessary consequence of sin, if God raises you from the dead, that means you must have been cleansed from your sin. You see how that works? That's the logic. Therefore, a resurrection would mean a spiritual transformation. Second, resurrection would bring about a physical transformation, a physical transformation. Look at verse 14. He says, all the days of my labor, I will wait until my change comes. My change. That word change is important. It's the same word actually that you'll find up in verse 7 used to describe a tree that sprouts after it's been chopped down, okay? Trees can always grow back and sprout leaves as long as there's still a stump. And Job believes that can happen to his own body as well. Even though he might physically die, his body can be raised to new life. And so Job believes that for God to be good, a resurrection must be not just spiritual, but physical and bodily. That's what, he's, that's what he's talking about here. A resurrection would mean a physical transformation. Third, resurrection would bring about a relational transformation. Look at verse 15. He says, you will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. Now, Job believes that a resurrection would finally put him into a right relationship with God, such that God would call out for Job, and then Job would what? Would respond and answer to him. That's the language of relationship, conversation, where God's not ignoring you. But it also would mean that God would long to be in a close relationship with those whom he has created. As it says there, he will long for the work of your hands. That, that means those, who, those whom he has created. So a resurrection would mean a relational transformation as well. So resurrection means a spiritual transformation, a physical transformation, a relational transformation. And so when we consider all of this and put it all together, what lesson does Job teach us about resurrection? Well, it's very simply this. Job says, resurrection is the solution to all evil. 
Resurrection is the solution to all evil. If you're taking notes, that is your first point, your first blank. Resurrection is the solution to all evil. The book of Job here identifies the deepest need that we all feel in our souls, that something isn't right in this world. And Job puts forward, of all things, the resurrection as the only solution that can meet that need. And that's why later on in chapter 19, Job doubles down on resurrection theology. Turn over there for a moment. Job 19. After lamenting how bad his situation has gotten in the first 24 verses, Job turns on a dime. And in verse 25, he says these very famous words that you guys know so well. I know you do. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last, he will rise up over the dust of this world. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I will behold God. Even though Job has endured some of the greatest suffering anyone could ever face, he is convinced without a shadow of a doubt at this point that he will undergo a resurrection because that alone make sense, would make sense of a God allowing so much evil to take place in his life and in the lives of others. Now, here's the thing. Job doesn't know how this is gonna happen. He has no clue. I don't know if you know this, but Job was the very first book written down in your Bible, not Genesis. Genesis may record some of the first moments of human history, but Job was the first book actually written. So if you think about it, if you think about it, Job himself doesn't have even a fragment of the Bible you have in your hands right now. Not one verse, nothing. He has nothing on which to base this idea, but, but he trusts that God would be this good. He trusts that God would be this good. A resurrection would seal the deal. And here's the thing, when we walk through the rest of our Bibles, the rest of progressive revelation, what do we find? Resurrection is what? The solution to all evil. It is. And as you watch your world here spin out of control more and more, I know you face a similar temptation like Job to doubt the goodness of God. It's hard to trust God in times like these. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe he's taken his foot off of the redemptive gas, so to speak. Even worse, maybe he's just a cosmic tyrant. But Job is here to remind you that the presence of evil doesn't actually prove that God is callous or cruel. Actually, actually, its presence reinforces God's goodness. How so? because it would all be solved by what? A resurrection. For Job, it was but a wish, a hope, a dream. But for us, what do we know? Resurrection is real. It is real. Therefore, resurrection is the solution to all evil. So what Job has taught us is very important, isn't it? Resurrection would be the solution to all evil. But is it true? Is it true? And if so, how do we know it's true? Can we, can we prove it? Can we prove that this is gonna be the case for us? Is there some way to guarantee that a resurrection will in fact take place? Well, Job actually gives us a hint in chapter 19, verse 25 there. 
He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will rise up over the dust of this world. Now, some of your translations here will say something to the effect, he will stand or take his stand upon the earth. But that word stand is not really the best translation of that word. This is actually rising to a standing position. And in the context, it says that he will rise up over the dust of this world. So really, the idea here, as the LSB actually correctly has it, is he will rise. He will rise. Why is Job so confident in his own resurrection? Because he believes there's a redeemer who will what? Rise from the dead as well. And that truth leads us to our next stop in our road trip, and that is the Psalms. The Psalms. Because it is in the Psalms that we see how the Messiah's resurrection really intersects with our own. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Last year I preached a sermon here on Psalm 91 and made the case that this entire Psalm is directly referring to not us, but to the Messiah. This is a messianic Psalm. He is the one who is standing when a thousand are falling at his side and 10,000 are falling at his right hand. And in the last verse of the Psalm, verse 16, it says about the Messiah, God, is, God the Father is speaking to his son. He says, with a long life, I will satisfy him and I will show him my salvation. And in my sermon last year, I made the claim that the long life that God will satisfy the Messiah with is a reference to eternal life brought about by a resurrection. But I want to take a moment now to prove this. How do we know that's exactly what that means? I mean, a long life could just mean that you live a long life and then eventually die, right? I mean, that's, that's definitely a truth. It's possible. Well, turn back to Psalm 21. Psalm 21. This too is a mess messianic psalm, and it's focusing on Jesus' kingship as the Messiah. And look what it says about Jesus in verse 4. It says, He, that is Jesus, asked life of you, that is God the Father, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. And that phrase, length of days, is the exact same phrase as long life in Psalm 91. In Hebrew, it's exactly the same. So I don't know why the translations didn't translate the same way, but it's exactly the same phrase. And what does it say about this length of days, this long life? It says they are what? Forever and ever. So now we've just established that the long life is eternal life. But how was that obtained by a resurrection? How do we know that it was accomplished through a resurrection. Because here's the thing, you cannot give an immortal God eternal life if he already has it. You can't. Jesus is immortal, he's, he's eternal because, because he is God. Unless, of course, what? He becomes a man and he dies. Then the Messiah, as a man, needs a resurrection in order to live eternal life bodily. You see that? 
Now hear me out. This is more of an implication of the text, not a direct statement, okay? We need more proof that the Messiah will in fact die and then that he will rise from the dead and live eternally. And that's what we find in Psalm 16. Psalm 16. So turn over a few more chapters back to Psalm 16. And when you get there, look at verse 10. It says there, for you will not forsake my soul, soul to Sheol, you will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. Now David, who pens Psalm 16, first says, God will not abandon my soul uh, in Sheol. And that's a fancy way of saying, uh, God will not let me stay in the grave, okay? That's what that's saying there. But then he also says, nor will God let his Holy One see corruption. And that's just a fancy way of saying that God will not let his Holy One decay in the ground, okay? So these are really two parallel statements. They're, they're essentially saying the same thing. But before you think that both lines are referring to David, the Holy One, you need to know, is actually not talking about David. In this text, Holy One is a code word for the Messiah. That's the Messiah. So we see very clearly here then that in the second half of verse 10, the Messiah will die and then he will what? Rise from the dead. But what we also see clearly from the first half of this verse is that David himself not only will die, but he himself will also rise from the dead in like manner. You see that? And he juxtaposes them together so that they are linked. You cannot separate them. And then the next psalm over, Psalm 17, we see David, David reiterate his confidence in his own personal resurrection. At the end of the, uh, the psalm in verse 15, it says, but as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. We'll see later in Isaiah that waking from sleep is a metaphor from rising from the dead. And so David is absolutely convinced that he will rise from the dead here. But, but what makes him so confident, right? Why is he so sure about this? It's what? It's what? It's because of the Messiah's resurrection. If the Messiah rises from the dead, I will too. In other words, what, what important lesson about the resurrection do the Psalms teach us? Well, the psalmists say resurrection is dependent on the Messiah. Resurrection is dependent on the Messiah. That's your second point. The Winter Olympics just finished up a, a few months ago here. Now, it may not be this way anymore, but it used to be that seemingly the entire nation would tune in to watch the Olympics. And there was always that sense that all our hopes and all of our dreams and our whole identity as a people, our pride as a nation, uh, rested on the shoulders of these young athletes. Everything was on the line with, with them. If they won, we won. If they lost, we lost, right? Their fate was our fate. We get that. It's no different with the resurrection. In fact, it's actually more real with the resurrection. If the Messiah rises from the dead, we will too. His victory is our victory. <clears throat> Do you realize your salvation hangs on the resurrection of one man? One man. Your entire salvation hangs on that. If Jesus doesn't rise, you will never rise, no matter what you do. 
It's never gonna happen. But if Jesus overcomes the grave, you will too. Well, I've got news for you, friends. The tomb is empty. The grave remains unoccupied. And if today you stand in Christ through faith, guess what? Yours will be too. Resurrection is dependent on the Messiah. So now that the Psalms have given us assurance of our own resurrection through the Messiahs, our thoughts now begin to turn to just how monumental the resurrection is then. If, if the resurrection rests on the back of God's own son, God must be trying to tell something very big about the resurrection. He must be making some kind of a statement. And he is. What is that statement? What is the message God wants us to know? Well, to find the answer, we must press on in our road trip until we reach our next stop, and that is the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea. Turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 6. I've begin, I'm beginning to fall in love with this book. This is one of the most amazing love stories in, in all the Bible. Because Hosea really is a story about how Israel has completely ditched God for, for other gods. They've delved into such deep idolatry that God has, they have incurred God's righteous wrath against them. But in Hosea, God proves just how faithful his love for his people really is despite all of their treachery. Even though Israel wants nothing to do with God, nothing at all, God says, I will still love her. I will still love her. But here's the thing. How far is God's love willing to go? Just how far? After all, Israel's decline into idolatry is pretty steep. We'll look at verse 1 of chapter 6 here. Hosea 1.6, Hosea 6.1. Come, let us return to Yahweh. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has struck us, but he will bandage us. He will make us alive after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Those words probably sound familiar to you, don't they? You will find them quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, where it says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You know that. But notice that in Hosea, it says that he will raise us up on the third day. But in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, he, Jesus, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Um, did Paul misquote 1 Corinthians? Did he make a mistake here? No. Paul is just building on the theology that the Psalms already gave us, right? We just learned this. The Messiah's resurrection is the basis for what? Our resurrection. The, the two go hand in hand. Christ represents his people, and so their resurrections are basically interchangeable. You can swap them out. So it's not inaccurate for Paul here to say, uh, to say that Christ is the one who will be raised on the third day because since we, we, oh, sorry, we will rise because what? Christ 
rose. That's the, that's the idea. And that's, that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians. That's his point. You have confidence in your own resurrection because Christ himself rose on the third day. See how that works? But what is Hosea's point here with the mention of resurrection? What is he after? Well, he's after this, that God loves his people that much, that much. Notice what it says at the end of verse two. It says, he will raise us so that we may live before him, so that we may live before him. We kind of just gloss over that, don't we? We like to focus on the fact that we will be raised on the third day or whatever. But no, no, no. Notice, we may live before him. It's not just that a resurrection would allow Israel to live forever, although that's true. It's that a resurrection means God's people can live before him. The whole book of Hosea, like I said, is one big love story where Israel has acted like a harlot and left God to love other gods. And God is using the difficulties and struggles and the judgment that he's bringing upon them to put thorns and thistles in their way to kind of hedge them in so they have nowhere to go except back to God. That's what he's doing. And God rightfully must put Israel to death for it. That's how great their sin is. But then what does he say? He says he will raise them up to live before him. Not only does Israel get to live forever, they get to live with God and to love God forever. God's love refuses to let death be the end of their relationship. That's how far God's love's gonna go. And that's why Hosea actually closes his book with another familiar verse in chapter 13. Go ahead and turn over there and look at verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 14. He says, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Oh, death, where are your thorns? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Now, this, is, this part of Hosea is, is also found in 1 Corinthians 15, this time at the end of the chapter in verses 54 and 55. But here in Hosea 13, God makes it clear that his love knows absolutely no bounds. God refuses to let death be the final word. His love is just too great. Not even death itself will keep God from loving his own people. His love is so great, you could say it this way, it goes beyond the grave itself. And so what lesson do we learn from Hosea about resurrection? Well, Hosea says, resurrection is the proof of God's love. Resurrection is the proof of God's love. I know we often think about the cross as the proof of God's love, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes and amen, that is one demonstration of God's love. But you know what? The resurrection is also a major demonstration of God's love. It really is. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with whether you believe God loves you or not. Maybe you just feel like you're so out of touch with the Lord or that you've sinned too greatly, or that you just can't get into a right relationship with God. You just have that feeling like your love has grown so cold and you're wondering to yourself, how could God ever love me? 
I don't, I just don't see it. Here's how. A resurrection. Resurrection. Resurrection is the proof that God does love you. And it's evidenced by the resurrection of Christ. In fact, resurrection, you could put it this way, is the smoking gun that his love will will, will never stop. You deserve to be in the grave forever, don't you? You deserve to be punished for your sins. God could have let Israel just die the way that they did. They sinned in such terrible, idolatrous ways. And we have too. But, but, the resurrection says, not so fast. Not so fast. If you're in Christ, God refuses to let that be your fate. God's love never grows cold. His love never waxes or wanes with your feelings. It remains constant and it holds strong through the darkest moments of life, even through the cessation of life itself because, the, because of the grave of our own Redeemer. It stays empty. So resurrection is the proof of God's love. It is the proof of God's love. So we've learned now that resurrection is the proof of God's love, but if the resurrection it does prove God's love, how does it do so? How good does it get? Maybe God will just raise us up from the dead and then he'll torment us some more and we'll face suffering and pain and sin and things of that nature. No, 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 no. If resurrection is the proof of God's love, then the new life from the resurrection has to be amazing. We want scripture to show us all that, the, the, the wonderful benefits of resurrection that will make us say, okay, that's the greatest expression of God's love that he could ever give. That's what we want to see, don't we? We want to see that. And so that takes us to our next stop on our road trip, and that is the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25. Isaiah was actually written not long after Hosea, probably about, oh, 30 to 35 years or so. And his whole agenda is to announce the salvation of God. Specifically, how is God going to save his people and what is that salvation going to look like? But you can't talk about salvation without talking about the resurrection. That's like trying to explain to someone how to drive a car without telling them about a steering wheel or a gas pedal or anything like that, right? That just wouldn't make any sense. And so, The resurrection, since it is essential to salvation, Isaiah must mention it. And he does here in in chapter 25, but look look how he does this. He doesn't just say there's a resurrection. Look at how he talks about this in verse six. It says, and Yahweh of hosts will will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples, even the veil, which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and Lord Yahweh will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from the earth. For Yahweh has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, This is our God in whom we have hoped that he would save us. This is Yahweh in whom we have hoped. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah doesn't just say, oh yeah, Israel, you're gonna be resurrected. 
No, what does he do? He goes into detail about what the resurrection will mean for us. He writes this beautiful poem about all the wonderful benefits of resurrection. It's gonna have a grand feast. There's gonna be a banquet with the best wine and the choicest of meats you could ever imagine. Death is gone for good. Sin and pain along with it. Every tear is wiped away. Every heart is glad. This is how good resurrection gets. And he goes on in chapter 26, verse 19, where he says, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Isaiah doesn't just say the dead are alive. He says they are singing for joy. They're singing for joy. Why? Because the world was once broken but now it's healed for good. And so what, what great lesson here does Isaiah teach us about the resurrection? Well, Isaiah says, resurrection is the key to a new creation. Resurrection is the key to a new creation. Whereas the world was once full of sin and death, it is now full of righteousness and life. The resurrection gives us the greatest before and after picture of all time. It replaces this old creation with a new one. Nothing is as it once was because the resurrection has made all things new. But perhaps the capstone of Isaiah's take on resurrection is found in the most famous chapter of all, Isaiah chapter 53 Go ahead and turn there, Isaiah 53, because it's there that we not only find the Messiah's suffering, which is what we're familiar with with this chapter, but you may be interested to know, we also see his resurrection. Look at verse 10. This is beautiful. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. So the Messiah was crushed by, the God, by God, his father, and he died, as we see in this chapter. But then he what? It says he will see his seed. Well, how can he see his seed or his descendants or those who belong to him if he's dead? Unless he what? Rises from the dead. And then it says he will prolong his days. Well, you should know, that's actually the same terminology we saw in Psalm 91, 16, Psalm 21, verse 4, which talked about the long life and the length of days. And so what's being described here is that the Messiah is being granted long life by rising from the dead. And then it says the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. Well, how's that going to be possible if Jesus died? He has to what? Rise from the dead. Isaiah 53 is not just about Jesus' death. It's also about Jesus' resurrection. And that's significant because what Isaiah does over the, the final 13 chapters of this book is that he dumps on us all those amazing benefits that stem directly from the resurrection. In fact, take, for example, Isaiah 54, verse 11, which says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones in antimony and your foundations I will set in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones. 
All your sons will be taught of Yahweh, and the peace of your sons will be great. In righteousness, you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. Isaiah tells us the story of a brand new creation where Jerusalem is rebuilt with the rarest of stones and the most precious of ornaments, where where its people are transformed from the inside out, where peace reigns without interruption. But how did it get that way? What brought about, what brought it into existence? The resurrection. The resurrection. Without the resurrection, you need to know the curse limps on. You realize that, right? Without the resurrection, death still reigns. You see, the resurrection really is the kill switch to all that's broken in this world. Yes, you need the cross to atone for sins, but you need a resurrection to change this world, to completely reverse its fortune. You need a resurrection to make all things new. And so I know it can be a little depressing to watch this world unravel before your eyes. I know it can be hard to deal with a lot of the personal struggles that you are going through, but you need to know that resurrection is is what gives you the confidence that there is something better that is to come. And it's not just wishful thinking. And it's not just something we say to make ourselves feel better. It is real because it's bringing with it a brand new creation that is going to be forever and ever. And it's never going to stop. And it's always going to be good to the ultimate peak of perfection. We can't even wrap our minds around it. But that's what's coming. And how is that coming? Through resurrection. Through resurrection. The resurrection is the key to a new creation. And because the resurrection is that key to a new creation, that means everything to us, doesn't it? It means everything to us. And it should stir our hearts even right now to say, that sounds amazing. Just tell me where to sign, right? Well, that takes us to our next stop on our road trip, and that is the book of Ezekiel. So turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Now, Ezekiel's angle on the resurrection is really to explain to us how we can actually obtain a resurrection for ourselves. And we're actually going to start in verse 25 here, where it says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. So God promises he will cleanse his people. He will wash away all their sin and all their iniquity. But how does he plan to do that? What mechanism is he going to use to purify them? Well, that's what we see here in verse 26. Look there. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, these two verses here are probably going to sound very familiar to you. Uh, This is what we call the new covenant. This is the new covenant. You can see uh, a similar account in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, but in Ezekiel here, it specifically mentions that God will replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Now, I think when we think about, when we hear hearts of stone, our natural inclination is to think of them as hard hearts and stubborn hearts, and that is certainly true. But if you think about it, there's actually more to it than just that. I mean, think about this analogy for a moment. If you literally have a heart made of stone, 
what are you? You're dead. Like, you're not even alive, okay? Like, it's not going to happen. Like, there's no fleshly heart to actually pump blood through your body. It just doesn't make any sense, right? And so, so what is God saying here when he, when he replaces their heart of stone with a heart of flesh? What's he doing? He's raising them from the dead. That's what he's doing. He's raising them from the dead. But this time, the resurrection isn't physical. I mean, corpses usually aren't dead because they have hearts that are literally made of stone, right? That's not what you find when you do an autopsy on a corpse, okay? What is this talking about? Well, the, the, the heart here is a reference to the deepest part of your inner person. This is your soul. It's the control center of your entire being that makes decisions. And so what Ezekiel is depicting in the new covenant with this heart of stone to heart of flesh business, he's basically saying this is not just a physical resurrection. We're talking now about a spiritual one. We're talking now about a spiritual one. There is a spiritual resurrection that needs to take place. God is, is promising to raise their spiritual hearts, and that's significant. Because if you jump ahead just a bit to chapter 37, you'll see the famous Valley of Dry Bones. Now, we won't read through all this, but you can see in this chapter that Ezekiel is given a vision of dry bones uh, scattered throughout the valley. And he watches God put these bones back together and then put flesh on it and then breathe his spirit into each, into each body. And all the adults are like, ew, what in the world is that? And all the kids are like, cool, right? You know, <laughs> that's the way it usually is. But as gross or cool as this vision sounds, kind of depending on your perspective, in verse 11, God interprets for us what is actually taking place. He says, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says Lord Yahweh, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh when I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it, declares Yahweh. What Ezekiel is doing here in chapters 36 and 37 is he's really telling you how all the different types of resurrection work together. How does a physical resurrection alluded to in chapter 37, relate to a spiritual resurrection spoken about in Ezekiel there, 36. Well, it's this. A physical resurrection is built upon the back of a spiritual resurrection. In other words, what is Ezekiel's point? Israel, you want to know what it takes to experience a physical resurrection? You need a what? A spiritual resurrection. You need a spiritual resurrection. And so this is the lesson that we learn from Ezekiel about resurrection. Ezekiel says resurrection is predicated on a spiritual resurrection. Resurrection is predicated on a spiritual resurrection. Now, you know God's not going to raise people from the dead who aren't raised internally. He's not going to raise people from the dead who aren't raised internally. He won't change the eternal fate of those who aren't changed at the level of the heart. We must be transformed spiritually before we will ever be transformed physically. 
A spiritual resurrection really is the prerequisite for a physical resurrection. And I need to ask you, have you undergone that spiritual resurrection? Has your heart been changed this way? You need to ask yourself that. Because if you have not experienced this, God is calling on you today to have your heart changed. But here's the thing. You can't do that. You can't change your heart. It's impossible. Any more than it's possible for a corpse to raise himself from the dead. It just, it doesn't happen. There's only one who can raise your heart from the dead and God himself told us who it was in Ezekiel 36. Did you catch it? He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I, I, I. Who is the one who brings about a spiritual resurrection, who makes a a stony heart, a fleshly heart? It's God. It's a work of God. You must put your faith in him and you must put your faith in his son, not just in the cross that he died for your sins, but even for what? The resurrection. You must place your faith in his resurrection. That's the only way that you're going to have a heart that has changed. If you feel that weight of conviction on your heart this morning, that your heart has not been transformed, that that you haven't turned to faith in Jesus, Uh, We will have a few godly men and women at the back over here who would love to talk with you and pray with you. Don't miss this opportunity. Turn to Christ. This is the day of salvation. Your heart can be changed by the Lord even now through faith. A new heart is the only way that you'll ever see a new creation. So resurrection is predicated on a spiritual resurrection. And now that we know how to obtain a resurrection from the dead, we must learn one final lesson. This is really the capstone of the resurrection, the one truth that takes everything that we have learned and really gives it force. And we learn this lesson at our final stop on our road trip, and that is the book of Daniel. So turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. The book of Daniel really gives us our uh, powerful Look at the sovereignty of God over all nations. Even though Israel is in exile and they're in the thick of it, God shows that he hasn't lost his edge or that uh, he has, wasn't caught off guard with their demise. He's still in full control. Even though they were taken into captive by Babylon and they're still in the captivity under Medo-Persia. But by the end of the book, it becomes very clear that God isn't just in control over the past. He's not just in control over the present. He's not even just in control over the future. God is in control of eternity itself. That's what we see at the end of the book in chapter 12, verse one. It says, now at, the time, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will stand. And there will be a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life and the others to reproach and everlasting contempt. 
Now, the scene here in Daniel 12 is the end times, and this is the scene of judgment, where books are open like we see in the book of Revelation, and people are judged by who is written in that book and who is not. And so what we see here is that there are some who will escape God's judgment. And who exactly are those people? Well, they're those who are written in the book of life. They're those who are given eternal life through a resurrection. We get that. That's what we've seen this whole time, really, all along in the Old Testament. But Daniel sneaks in something here at the end that we have not yet seen in biblical revelation. There's a twist to this. Believers are not the only ones who will rise from the dead. Unbelievers will too. Unbelievers will too. As crazy as it sounds, everyone who's ever lived will be resurrected from the dead. So what's the catch? It says some will be raised to eternal life. Others will be raised to eternal death. In other words, what's in store for those who who don't trust in Jesus is a resurrection fit into a new body, not fit for heaven, but fit for eternal destruction. That's what's happening here. Their bodies will be made immortal so they can endure pain and torment and torture of God's wrath without dying from it ever. That's why the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched as Jesus himself says. It's a devastating, it's a gruesome, it's a deeply dark picture. But it's the serious warning that Daniel himself issues about resurrection. With all that we've learned up to this point in the Old Testament, we finally come to perhaps the most grave lesson of resurrection, and that is this. Daniel says, resurrection is the eternal fate of every soul. Resurrection is the eternal fate of every soul. What makes the resurrection such a big doctrine is not just that it solves all evil or is dependent on the Messiah. It's not just that it proves God's love or is the key to a new creation. That's all true, but it's a big doctrine because it's the eternal destiny eternal destiny of every single person in this room. That's the truth. It's not, am I going to be resurrected? It's, where am I going to be resurrected? That's the question. To everlasting life or to everlasting death? Charles Spurgeon, preaching on Acts chapter 24, verse 15, closed his sermon with these very, very, very convicting words. He said, oh, Christian people, try to think of all the unconverted people with whom you have to meet as your immortal souls. Your servant girl that nurses and loves your child, you may perhaps never have thought of but as a servant girl, but she is an immortal soul as much as the queen on the throne. Or it may be the man who comes to do odd jobs about the house and who blacks your shoes. You never thought of him probably, but as as a drudge. Yet he, even he, shall outlast the stars. And all those working men and women and girls who come streaming into your yard or factory, who weave at your looms, toil in your workrooms, stand at your printing press or at the book binding or in your builder's shop, all these and the myriads engaged in commercial and professional life, you may hitherto perhaps have only thought of them as two-legged machines to earn as many shillings for you and draw so many less from you every single week. Aye, but now just think again. They are living for immortality as well as yourselves. 
Will you try so to act with them that if their funeral knell were heard and they were gone, the voice of conscience might not have to torment you with this suggestion? You neglected their souls. You did not do to them what you ought to have done to them. You kept back from their immortal part that which alone could make them blessed in this life and in the life to come. Tis but a simple thought. And yet if I leave it with you and God the Holy Spirit blesses it, it may be, it may be a very blessed thought to some of you whom you know not of today. Do remember that all you see in the streets and all you see in the house and all you see here tonight are all immortal and shall live again and so treat them as such, looking forward to the time when you shall have to give an account whether you have abused or used graciously the opportunities which your master placed in your way. We need to care more about the resurrection and we need to care more about the souls of those who don't. I think that adds a little more meaning to the doctrine of the resurrection, doesn't it? We knew the resurrection was good, but maybe we didn't know just how much much good it really is. Well, now we've got a glimpse. It's the solution to all evil. It's dependent on the Messiah. It's the proof of God's love. It's the key to a new creation. It's predicated on a spiritual resurrection, and it's the eternal fate of every soul. Can I put it this way? Resurrection is the cornerstone of our hope. It is the cornerstone of our hope. Reminds me of the last verse of a a modern hymn that I'm just growing to love more and more and more called Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. And that final verse says this, unto the grave what will we sing? Christ he lives, Christ he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Now, all that is just resurrection from the Old Testament. We didn't even get into resurrection in the New Testament. But that's just going to have to be a story for another day. Lord, we thank you so much that there is something called a resurrection. And it's not just something in theory, but as Job himself realized on the day of his own death, there is a resurrection. There is a, a Messiah who did rise from the dead. And because he rose, those of us who are in Christ, who have put our trust in him and in him alone, we too will rise from the dead if we indeed have those transformed, resurrected hearts. God, encourage us with that truth and that hope. And if there's anyone in this midst who has not come to faith in Christ, whose heart has not been changed and has been resurrected from the dead, do a work even now. May your spirit revive their hearts, even those who are stubborn, even those who are resisting, even those who are saying, that will never be me. Make it them so that your glory would be put on display and you will prove that resurrection has all the power to accomplish all of your purposes for all time. Establish your way through this resurrection for all time. In Christ our Savior, 
our resurrected Savior. We pray these things. Amen.